Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, is associated with significant morbidity, high burden of hospitalization, surgery, and complex pharmacologic management. Underlying active disease, as well as treatment with immunosuppressive therapy, contribute to an increased risk of serious and opportunistic infections in these patients. Let's explore the hierarchy of infectious risk amongst the advanced IBD therapies and discuss strategies for the prevention of infection with pharmacist Megan Edwards. So inflammatory bowel disease involves a complex pathogenesis mediated by the immune system inflammatory cascades. Since the initial approval of tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors back in 1998 for Crohn's disease, there have been several new biologic and small molecule drugs aimed at regulating the immune and inflammatory response to achieve remission. Alongside the development of these agents, our understanding of their adverse effect profiles has also evolved. And given their immunosuppressing mechanisms of action, particular attention has been devoted to infectious risk, both by healthcare providers and patients. However, the risk of adverse events, including the development of infections, must be carefully balanced against the risk of disease progression and complications. So, as it pertains to infectious risk with our advanced IPD therapies, should we be spooked? So for this presentation, I will be touching on the pathophysiology of IBD and discussing the available treatment options. I will also explain the hierarchy of infectious risk amongst the advanced IBD therapies and touching on the different prevention strategies that are utilized prior to and during treatment with our advanced IBD therapies. So briefly touching on epidemiology of IBD and why this topic is relevant, it is estimated that between 1.6 to 3.1 million Americans are affected by IBD. It is most commonly diagnosed in our younger adult population, and it ends up being a very expensive condition because patients suffer from this disease for several decades. So before diving into what IBD is, I first want to point out that there is this misconception that inflammatory bowel disease is analogous to irritable bowel syndrome, which is not the case. Irritable bowel, bowel syndrome is a structural gastrointestinal disorder, while inflammatory bowel disease includes ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, and is a chronic immune-mediated inflammatory condition of the GI tract. So let's take a look at what is happening on a cellular level. So when looking at our normal intestinal physiology, we have this intact epithelial barrier that prevents antigen and bacteria entry into the lamina propria space. And normally we have this relative balance between the, between the secretion of our anti-inflammatory cytokines, which include tumor growth factor beta and interleukin-10, and secretion of our pro-inflammatory cytokines, which include tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-12, and interleukin-23. Our anti-inflammatory cytokines promote the secretion of our regulatory T-cells, which function to dampen inflammation by keeping our effector T-cells in check. And so ultimately, this lends to there being a homeostatic balance within our intestinal space. However, in patients with IBD, microbial dysbiosis occurs in association with the disruption of our mucus layer and epithelial tight junctions, where we have increased differentiation and proliferation of our lymphocytes, increased immune cell recruitment from our systemic circulation, 
And this causes a dysregulated immune system response where we have increased levels of our pro-inflammatory cytokines, increased differentiation and proliferation of our lymphocytes, and increased immune cell recruitment from the systemic circulation. And all of this together culminates in the disruption of the homeostatic balance within the intestinal epithelium, causing continued inflammatory insult, resulting in the destruction of the intestinal mucosa and associated morbidity in patients with IBD. Over the last several years, our understanding of this immune, a complex immunopathogenesis has opened new avenues for the development of dr drugs that target this dysregulated immune response. And so when looking at where our advanced therapies work within this inflammatory cascade, we'll first start with our three classes of advanced or monoclonal antibodies. So tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors and interleukin-12 and 23 inhibitors bind to and neutralize these pro-inflammatory cytokines, resulting in the suppression of several pro-inflammatory pathways. The integrin inhibitors block lymphocyte trafficking to the site infl inflammation by binding to the alpha-4 beta-7 integrins located on gut-specific lymphocytes. We have two classes of small molecule drugs. The Janus kinase inhibitors bind to and inhibit the JAK signaling pathway, while our sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor modulators bind to the S1P receptor um, located on the surface of lymphocytes and prevent lymphocyte egress out of the lymph nodes into the systemic circulation, ultimately preventing lymphocytes from traveling to the site of inflammation. So as I alluded to in the previous slide, we have three classes of biologics and two classes of small molecule drugs. Listed are the different drugs within each class. Some approved for both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, and some only approved for one or the other. When discussing the integrin inhibitor class, I will only be focusing on betalizumab, as natalizumab has largely fallen out of favor due to, due to the development of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy from reactivation of the JCV virus. In addition, when discussing this S1P receptor modulator class, I will only be discussing the infectious risk data behind Ozanimod, and that's because Atrasimod was just previously approved this past month. So now that I have introduced the various classes of advanced therapies and the different drugs within them, I'm now gonna walk us through how this disease progresses in our patients and where these advanced therapies fit within our overall treatment approach. So this graph represents the chronic relapsing and remitting nature of inflammatory bowel disease which is marked by increased inflammatory activity where patients experience most of their symptoms. And these are followed by periods of lower inflammatory activity where patients may feel very well and have little symptom activity. However, as the disease course progresses, there's this chronic inflammatory insult on the intestinal mucosa. In this, coupled with bouts of relapse, results in progressive damage to the digestive tract with associated complications, leading to a decrease in our patient's overall quality of life. In terms of our general approach to how we treat this, these patients, there's an induction phase of treatment and a maintenance phase of treatment. For moderate to severe disease, advanced therapies are used to both induce and maintain remission, sometimes in combination with an immunomodulator, such as a thiopurine. Corticosteroids are sometimes used initially to help dampen down that, down that initial increased inflammatory activity to help put a patient into remission. However, corticosteroids are not recommended to maintain remission. So now that I have discussed generally how we induce and maintain remission, at what point within the disease course do we initiate these advanced therapies? There's this window of opportunity earlier, early in the disease course where the early initiation of effective advanced therapies, which actually work to promote mucosal healing, can significantly alter disease progression 
and initi initiating more aggressive treatments earlier on is thought to achieve more complete remission and change the natural course of the disease, preventing flare-ups down the road and ultimately improving our patient's quality of life. And so I also want to point out that initi initiating these advanced therapies earlier on means that a majority of patients with moderate to severe um, IBD will be on these treatments. And so likely, if you encounter this patient population as a healthcare provider, you'll see these treatments. And I think it's important to have a general understanding of the advantages and disadvantages associated with them. So that brings us to our first um, audience assessment question. So which of the following is a true statement? A, irritable bowel syndrome is a form of inflammatory bowel disease. B, inflammatory bowel disease is most commonly diagnosed in the elderly population. C, Inflammatory bowel disease is a chronic disease that cannot be cured, or D, advanced therapies are reserved for treatment in later stages of the disease course. I think we've plateaued in responses. And so yes, I agree, C is the correct answer. Inflammatory bowel disease is a chronic disease that cannot be cured. A is incorrect because irritable bowel syndrome is a structural GI condition and irritable inflammatory bowel disease is a chronic immune-mediated inflammatory condition. So these two conditions are not analogous. B is incorrect because um, inflammatory bowel disease is actually diagnosed in our younger adult population. And D is incorrect because advanced therapies are actually recommended to be initiated earlier on in the tr treatment course to um, change the natural course of the disease and actually promote mucosal healing. The use of shared decision-making has become a mainstay in the management of patients with IBD. IBD is a complex disease with large individual variation and each treatment has its own advantages and disadvantages that need to be communicated with patients prior to starting therapy. There's this efficacy versus safety balance that we are trying to work around where we can't recommend avoiding effective therapies because of what might happen, but we also can't place, pa place patients at undue risk by giving them drugs that aren't safe. So for this presentation, I'm gonna be focusing on the infectious risk component of this equation and trying to answer the question of how much weight should we be placing on this one element of the safety versus efficacy equation? So as mentioned before, balancing safety and efficacy is a constant challenge for providers managing IPD. Batten colleagues propose a safety pyramid based on accumulated data. And so we are gonna discuss the infectious risk data behind the creation of the safety pyramid, starting from the bottom or at least safe therapies and working our way up to the top. Because the risk of infections with steroids is highly variable and very much so dependent on dose and duration, and because they're not recommended to maintain remission, they will not be a focus of discussion when it comes to defining their infectious risk in IBD. So therefore, we're gonna begin our discussion with our TNF-alpha inhibitor class, both as monotherapy and a combination with thiopurines. TNF-alpha inhibitors are our oldest classes of advanced therapies, and because of that, we have more data surrounding their safety and efficacy, which we'll touch on in the next few slides. So TNF-alpha inhibitors have been linked to an increased risk of serious and opportunistic infections. However, accurately defining their infectious risk has proven to be difficult. When you take a look at the randomized control trials and the network meta-analyses of those randomized control trials, you see that the results are mixed and that the, an increased risk of infections is not found in most. The reason network meta-analyses may not accurately depict true infectious risk with the use of TNF-alpha inhibitors is because network meta-analyses aren't powered to detect differences in risk of in serious infections due to their relative rare occurrence. 
In addition, randomized control trials have short follow-up periods, periods and are relatively strict when it comes to their inclusion and exclusion criteria. So therefore, in an, attempt, in an attempt to determine possible association between infectious risk and our TNF alpha inhibitor treatments, we have to rely on real world data with, from our retrospective cohort studies um, that involve less strict inclusion and exclusion criteria and longer follow-up periods. So this study by Imperator and colleagues is an example of a study with real world data that may be better designed to more accurately establish the real incidence and prevalence of infections with the use of TNF-alpha inhibitors in patients with IBD. So this was a retrospective cohort study that included 288 adult biologic-naive patients treated with TNF-alpha inhibitors. Patients were matched one-to-one -one by age, gender, disease duration, and type of IBD with an IBD population treated with non-biologic agents during the same study period. The primary outcome of this trial was to assess the incidence and prevalence of infections in patients exposed to TNF-alpha inhibitors versus patients treated with non-biologic agents. Secondary outcomes included looking at the difference in infectious rate between the different drugs. So when looking at the results of this trial, we see that the primary outcome occurred in 20.1% of patients treated with TNF-alpha inhibitors versus 8% of patients treated with non-biologic agents. Therefore, TNF-alpha inhibitor exposure was linked to a significantly higher risk of developing any type of infection compared to patients unexposed. So when we take a look at the difference in infectious rate between the different drugs, we see that TNF-alpha inhibitor-exposed patients were at significantly higher risk of infections compared with our amino salicylates. And although the incidence rate of infections was numerically higher, um, with the numerically lower with the TNF-alpha inhibitors compared with the immunomodulators, the difference was not found to be significant. However, a significantly lower risk of infections with TNF-alpha inhibitor therapy was shown when compared with our corticosteroids. So overall, this study showed us that the risk of infections with TNF-alpha inhibitors is significantly higher compared with our immunosalicylates, no different when compared with immunomodulators, and significantly less when compared with corticosteroids. Now, this is one retrospective cohort study that demonstrated uh, an increased risk of infections with our TNF-alpha inhibitors. But what have other retrospective cohort studies shown us? And what is the infectious risk behind TNF-alpha inhibitors in combination with thiopurines, which, if you will remember, was at the bottom of our safety pyramid? Singh and colleagues conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of 15 different observational studies that were published through 2018. The objective of this study was to assess the comparative risk of serious infections in patients treated with TNF-alpha inhibitors, both as monotherapy and in combination with thiopurines. So when we take a look at the results of this trial, we see that TNF-alpha inhibitor monotherapy was associated with a 64% increased risk of serious infections compared with immunomodulator monotherapy, and this was found to be statistically significant. And this was a different result than, was, than what was seen in the prior study by Imperator and colleagues which is likely due to differences in study design and methodology. When looking at combination therapy with TNF-alpha inhibitors plus immunomodulators, we see that there is this consistent statistically significant increased risk of serious infections with combination therapy versus monotherapy. So overall, the results of this study demonstrate that TNF-alpha inhibitor monotherapy may be associated with a higher risk of serious infections compared to immunomodulator monotherapy. The study has also shown us that combination therapy is consistently associated with an increased risk of serious infections versus monotherapy, 
justifying combinations therapies placement at the bottom of our safety pyramid as being the least safe. So that wraps up our discussion of the TNF-alpha inhibitor class, where we saw that the real-world data demonstrate an increased risk of infections and serious infections with this class. I do want to acknowledge that there are some discrepancies in the data surrounding the comparative risk of um, TNF-alpha inhibitor monotherapy versus thiopurine monotherapy. However, the data have consistently shown us that combination therapy is associated with the highest risk of infections compared with monotherapy. So we're going to continue to work our way up the safety pyramid and next focus our attention on the infectious risk data surrounding our JAK inhibitor class. So the JAK inhibitors are a class of small molecule drugs that include tofacitinib and upadacitinib, both approved for the treatment of moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. Tofacitinib was approved in 2018, and the Octave Open trial was a long-term extension trial that assessed the long-term safety and tolerability of tofacitinib over a seven-year period. Upadacitinib is a much newer drug in this class, approved in 2022, so the data surrounding its long-term safety are more limited. The U-Achieve maintenance trial was a randomized control trial that assessed the, the safety and efficacy of two different doses of upadacitinib versus placebo over a 52-week period. So when looking at the results of the Octave Open trial, we see that the incidence rate of serious infections was found to be low. And aside from respiratory tract infections, herpes zoster infections were the most commonly reported type of infection in this trial, with an incidence rate of 3.12 or 3.16 per 100 patient years, with a small percentage of those being defined as serious. When evaluating the results from the UACHIEVE maintenance trial, we see that the incidence rate of opportunistic and serious infections was found to be very similar between both doses of upadacitinib versus placebo with the incidence rate actually being numerically lower with upadacitinib versus placebo. However, the incidence rate of herpes zoster infections was found to be significantly higher with the use of upadacitinib versus placebo, with there being no cases of herpes zoster infections reported in the placebo arm. So when we compare the results of both of these trials, we see that herpes zoster infections is a common theme for both. So as we did with the TNF-alpha inhibitor class, we are gonna take a look at some real-world da data with the JAK inhibitor class and assess whether this increased rate of herpes zoster infections is seen in the real-world setting and whether or not there are other significant infectious signals that we should be concerned about with this class of medications. The Tropic Consortium was a multi-center retrospective cohort study that evaluated 205 patients treated with tofacitinib with the primary outcome to assess tofacitinib's safety profile in the real world setting. The authors of this study found that 15.7% of patients experienced an adverse event, with infections being the most common and adverse event reported. Herpes zoster infections were the most commonly type of infection reported with an incidence rate of 3.29 per 100 patient years. So overall, the authors concluded that these results were consistent with those found in the registration trials in that there was an increased risk of herpes zoster infections with the use with JAK inhibitors, and that there were no other significant infectious signals found. So that concludes our discussion of our JAK inhibitor class, where we saw an increased risk of herpes zoster infections. We unfortunately do not have any trials comparing JAK inhibitors head-to-head -head with other classes of advanced therapies, which will be a common theme we see for a lot of these drugs. Therefore, JAK inhibitors are located lower on our safety pyramid, due to the infectious risk data we do have, which does in indicate an increased risk of herpes zoster infections. So we're gonna continue moving our way up the safety pyramid and next focus our attention on the S1P receptor modulator class. 
Ozanamod was approved in 2020 for the treatment of moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. The True North trial was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, and to be included in the study, patients had to demonstrate the presence of varicella zoster virus IgG or complete vaccination against VZV at least 30 days prior to randomization. When we take a, take a look at the safety results of this trial, we see that 2.2% of patients treated with ozanamod developed a herpes zoster infection versus 0% in the placebo group. And this occurred even though patients were, were required to demonstrate immunity or complete vaccination against VZV prior to randomization. So following the True North randomized trial, if patients were successful in achieving remission with ozanamod, they could enter the True North open label extension trial, which is still ongoing, but we do have interim analysis results of the long-term efficacy and safety with the use of ozanamod over a three-year period. So the authors of this study reported that serious, serious infections occurred in 6.1% of patients treated with ozanamod, resulting in a low incidence rate. 5.3% of patients um, developed a herpes zoster infections, and although this resulted in a low incidence rate, it is important to remember that all patients included in the study were required to either demonstrate immunity or complete vaccination against VZV. I also wanted to point out that herpes zoster infections was the only treatment emergent adverse event that led to drug discontinuation in greater than one patient in this trial. So that concludes our discussion of our S1P receptor modulator class where we do not have that much experience or data with this drug class yet. But with the safety data we do have, there is evidence to indicate an increased risk of herpes zoster infections. And that's why it's located on the safety pyramid where it is at, above JAK inhibitors, but below the drugs we consider the safest. We are gonna to continue to move our way up the safety pyramid and next focus our attention on the infectious risk data surrounding our interleukin inhibitor class. So for the interleukin inhibitor class of advanced therapies, we have two drugs approved for IBD, ustekinumab and rizinkizumab. Ustekinumab was approved in 2016 for Crohn's disease and in 2019 for ulcerative colitis. The UNIFI and the IM United trials are two long-term extension trials that evaluated the long-term safety of ustekinumab over a three and five-year period respectively. Rizinkizumab is a newer biologic approved for Crohn's disease in 2022. We don't have long-term safety data for this medication yet, so we're going to discuss the Fortify trial, which is a randomized control trial that evaluated the safety and efficacy of rizinkizumab over a 52-week period. So when looking at the results across these three trials, we see that the rate of developing any type of infection was very similar between the interleukin inhibitors and versus placebo. The rate of developing a serious infection was also found to be very similar between um, our interleukin inhibitors versus placebo. The rate was numerically higher for rizinkizumab versus placebo, but the difference was very small. So overall, we can conclude that across all three studies, there was no significantly increased risk of infections or serious infections with the use of interleukin inhibitors. However, the data I just presented is exclusively data for randomized controlled trials, and so more real-world data is warranted with this class of medications. So that concludes our discussion of the interleukin inhibitor class, where we saw no increased risk of infections with, across the randomized controlled trials. So we've now made it to the top of our pyramid, where we will now discuss the integrin inhibitors with the focus being on the infectious risk data surrounding vedolizumab. So compared to the last three advanced therapies we just discussed, 
Vedalizumab is a drug that we have had around for a comparatively longer period of time, approved back in 2014. So the first trial I will discuss is one by Colin Bell and colleagues. They wanted to assess the cumulative long-term safety of vedolizumab using the data from six randomized controlled trials. And for the results, they found that the rate of serious infections and enteric infections was found to be numerically higher in the vedolizumab group versus placebo group. However, as you can see, the 95% confidence intervals overlap, indicating that the difference was not found to be statistically significant. And the authors ultimately concluded in this trial that vedolizumab has a favorable safety profile. So Bay and colleagues then conducted a systematic review of six post-marketing studies, and they wanted to assess whether there was any new safety signals or differences from the conclusions that was drawn by a Colin Bell's integrated analysis. So Bay and colleagues found that the rate of infections across all studies was low, occurring in 7.8% of patients treated with vedolizumab, with the most common types of infections being respiratory tract infections and gastrointestinal infections, which is similar to what was seen in Colin Bell's study. So overall, this study confirmed the favorable safety profile of vedolizumab that was described in the registration trials with no new safety signals found. So because vedolizumab has been around for a while, we have more real-world clinical experience with this drug and one head-to-head -head trial that has evaluated vedolizumab versus TNF-alpha inhibitors. The EVOLVE trial was a multi-country, multi-center retrospective cohort study that evaluated the clinical efficacy and safety of vedolizumab versus TNF-alpha inhibitors using real-world clinical data. So when we zero in on the safety results of this trial, we see that the risk of serious infections was found to be significantly lower with the use of vedolizumab versus TNF-alpha inhibitors in our overall population of IBD patients. When we separate out ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, we see that the risk of serious infections was not found to be um, statistically different between vedolizumab and TNF-alpha inhibitors. However, for Crohn's disease, um, the difference or the risk of serious infections was found to be significantly lower with the use of vedolizumab versus TNF-alpha inhibitors. Overall, the authors concluded that vedolizumab may have a lower risk of serious infections compared to TNF-alpha inhibitor treatments. So we have now completed our journey through some of the data behind the creation of this safety pyramid and explain the justifications for this hierarchy. Next, we're gonna take a look at a recently published trial that evaluated the infectious risk of all of the advanced therapies and compared them side by side. So this systematic review by Oliver and colleagues evaluated the data from almost 40,000 patients across 90 randomized control trials. And they looked at IBD patients treated with any of the advanced therapies. The primary outcome of the study was to assess the incidence rate of reported opportunistic infections. Overall, the incidence rate of reported opportunistic infections in patients with IBD exposed to advanced therapies was low, but was greater when compared with placebo. The authors noted, however, that most of these clinical trials lacked a formal definition for opportunistic infections. And so there was significant heterogeneity between the types of infections that were reported as opportunistic infections. And so because of that, the authors proposed a working definition of opportunistic infections that includes the occurrence of certain marker infections or presentations that highlights the presence of altered host immunity and the presence of treatment with advanced therapies. Of note, the author's proposed definition included any form of herpes zoster infections, 
which is important because clinical trials commonly reported the occurrence of herpes zoster infections separately from opportunistic infections. So when applying the author's proposed definition, we see that the incidence rate of infections increases. The authors also reported the incidence rate of opportunistic infections for each individual cl drug class and compared them side by side, which we'll take a look at next. When looking at the hierarchy of the incidence rate of opportunistic infections, using the proposed definition by Oliveira and colleagues, we see that JAK inhibitors are at the bottom with the highest incidence rate, and betalizumab is at the top with the lowest, lowest incidence rate. So how does this compare to our safety pyramid by Bat and colleagues? We see that betalizumab, the interleukin inhibitors, and the S1P receptor modulators all remain inconsistent in ranking of infectious risk. The difference in hierarchy comes when we look at our TNF-alpha inhibitors and our JAK inhibitors, where the TNF-alpha inhibitors actually moved down or moved up in the safety pyramid, and the JAK inhibitors moved down, with its incidence rate of infections being the highest compared to the other advanced therapies. The slight difference in ranking of infection risk is likely driven by Oliver and colleagues, including any form of herpes zoster infections, in their proposed definition of opportunistic infections. With that being said, the safety pyramids are very similar, and Oliveira and colleagues showed us that the overall incidence rate of opportunistic infections is very low. So that brings us to our second assessment question. What is the safety profile of the interleukin inhibitors, ustekinumab and rizinkizumab, in comparison to the other advanced therapies in the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease? Please place a pin um, somewhere on this arrow from least safe to safest. So I think we've pl plateaued out in our answers. Um, so yes, I would agree with the audience that interleukin inhibitors are considered one of our safest classes of advanced therapies, with the randomized controlled trials showing that there is no increase of infections or serious infections with this class of medications. So with the data I have presented surrounding the known infectious risk amongst the advanced therapies in IBD, we see that the risk is present, but it's overall very low. And so we don't withhold these treatments due to the risk of infections. There are several things we do in practice to mitigate the risk of our patients developing infections while on these therapies, um, which we'll take a look at next. So prior to and throughout therapy with immunosuppression, there are several things we can do to prevent infections. And this includes infection screening and vaccinations. For infection screening, it's recommended to obtain a viral hepatitis panel to assess the patient's serologic status against hepatitis A and hepatitis B, and can sometimes be considered for hepatitis B depending on patient risk factors. It's also recommended to screen patients for latent TB using the quantiferin TB gold assay. For HPV screening, it's recommended to obtain regular um, pap smears in women and regular anal pap smears in men, especially men who have sex with men. And then it's recommended to obtain regular or periodic complete blood counts, or CBCs, excess, especially for patients on TNF-alpha inhibitors, S1P receptor modulators, and JAK inhibitors, due to the risk of these medications causing absolute lymphocyte and neutrophil count depletion. When looking at vaccination considerations, it's important to note that when patients are on these therapies, they are considered immunosuppressed. So we avoid administering any live vaccinations while patients are on these therapies. It's also important to note that we do not delay therapy to administer vaccinations, which in a majority of situations is not an issue because most of the vaccines that we are considering come in non-live formulations. 
So first, looking at our respiratory vaccines, we want to make sure that patients are obtaining their annual influenza vaccine and are up to date on their COVID-19 series and any associated boosters. The immunosuppressing effects of our advanced therapies place patients at a higher risk of developing pneumonia. So the pneumococcal vaccine, or the PCD20, is recommended in our, in our IBD patient population. Vaccination against RF, RSV should be considered in our patients who are 60 years of age and older. For our 3H vaccinations, patients that were found to be non-immune to hepatitis A and or hepatitis B should receive those vaccinations. To protect against herpes zoster infections for patients who are 19 years of age and older should receive the inactivated herpes zoster vaccine series. And then lastly, to protect against certain types of cancers caused by human papillomavirus, the vaccination against HPV is recommended through the age of 26 and can be considered using shared decision-making for patients 27 to 45 years of age. So that brings us to our final uh, audience assessment question where we are gonna take a look at a patient case. So a 32 year old male presents to the clinical pharmacist prior to initiation of infliximab for a new diagnosis of moderate to severe Crohn's disease. He's up to date on all routine childhood vaccinations in addition to COVID-19 and influenza vaccinations. His infection screening revealed he is immune to both hepatitis A and hepatitis B viruses. Which additional vaccinations are indicated in this patient? A, haemophilus influenza type B and herpes zoster vaccine, B, meningococcal vaccine and pneumococcal vaccine, C, herpes zoster vaccine and pneumococcal vaccine, or D, herpes zoster vaccine and meningococcal vaccine. So yes, C is the correct answer. Herpes zoster vaccine and pneumococcal vaccine are recommended in our IBD population where we're considering administering an advanced therapy. Any answers with haemophilus influenza type B or meningococcal vaccine are incorrect since this patient is up to date on all his child, routine childhood vaccinations, and it is not recommended to re-administer these vaccinations in patients with IBD. So in summary, in patients with moderate to severe inflammatory bowel disease, advanced therapies that actively suppress the immune system are used early in the disease course to achieve remission. When balancing the risk versus benefits of the advanced therapies, the infectious risk component should be a small consideration given the low risk of infections with the use of these therapies. Infection prevention strategies, including infection screening and vaccinations, should be utilized prior to and throughout treatment with the advanced therapies. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.